Assalamu alaikum. My name is Dawood Sarfraz. This is Muslim World in Focus. If you Google search greatest empires in history, you're bound to find mention of the Ottoman Empire. At its height, the empire spanned three continents and lasted more than 600 years. My guest today is Diana Dark, whose new book titled The Ottomans, A Cultural Legacy, re-examines the Ottomans and reassesses their legacy by exploring their unique achievements in architecture, cuisine, music, science, and medicine, as well as the political challenges they met. Diana Dark is a Middle East cultural expert who has authored several books and whose work has appeared in leading newspapers such as The Guardian and Financial Times. Diana Dark, welcome to Muslim World in Focus. Thank you for inviting me. Diana Dark, I want to begin our discussion with what it meant to be Ottoman. Now, the Ottoman Empire is often associated with the modern Turkish state. However, you explain in your book that although founded by Turkic tribes, the Ottoman psyche was not constrained to a Turkish identity, but rather driven by a cosmopolitan worldview. Could you speak about the understanding Ottoman sultans, viziers, and other elites had about the Ottoman identity? Yes, it's a very interesting thing that surprises a lot of people, actually, that the Ottomans did not think of themselves as Turks. In fact, you have to remember that at the time that they were um, you know, building up to founding their state, the state actually was founded in 1299, um, to be a Turk was was a as a disparaging ter term, you know. It was a, a sort of country bumpkin type of uh, thing. If you were dismissed as a Turk, you know, a sort of peasant, virtually uneducated. So, the the although they were originally from Turkic Turkic tribes, um, with their ambitions to found a state, right from the start, they wanted this state to be as open and embracing as possible of all religions and all ethnicities, uh, because they recognized that from their own background, they did not have all the skills that were going to be required for setting up a state. They, they freely acknowledged that and that they would therefore have to assimilate and welcome everybody who was prepared to join them um, in order to uh, that they could be mutually beneficial and and um, what what they were offering, if you like, to all the um, the other groupings uh, that um, that came under the state, and we have to remember that at their height they they actually had seventy two different ethnic groupings, you know, in at least twelve different languages, and it was normal to be trilingual, um, and what they were offering as a state was um, protection, if you like, a sort of overarching protection if you were an Ottoman. And what that meant was it didn't matter whether you were Muslim, Christian, Jewish, you know, any, any sect at all. Um, you were a valued Ottoman citizen for what you could bring to the state. And as long as you paid your taxes, <laughs> then the state would leave you alone, you know, to, to, to run your own affairs, essentially. Um, so it was it was the most cosmopolitan state on earth. You mentioned uh, very interestingly the seventy two ethnic uh, groupings, right? Your book is filled with just amazing historical anecdotes, and I, I loved reading them. But you mentioned in your book the incident of Alexander Mavrocordato, who was the Ottoman prince of Moldavia, a Greek Christian, and when Catherine the Great of Russia tried to woo Alexander, who as at the time was one of the grandest Greek princes, as you mentioned. His polite refusal was, it is better that Her Majesty regard me as a friendly Turk, which does not detract from my quality as a Christian, 
But on the contrary, my Christian faith orders me even to be faithful to my emperor, which would have been the Ottoman Sultan at the time. You know, Diana, this is something it's it's hard to believe today, given the you know the the stuff going on in the world. A Greek Christian feeling more at home as an Ottoman prince than changing sides to a Christian empire, which you know leads to me to my next question: How did the Ottoman state treat the multitude of religious ethnic communities residing within their border? That would lead to someone like Alexander feeling this way. Well, because they they had what was known as this the millet system, where where each religious community uh, was given its own freedoms. So, um, for instance, the Muslim millet meant that there were no differences between Sunni, Shia, all the different sects. Um, Everybody, all Muslims had the same rights and they could be, you know, they could be from Albania, they could be from Syria, they could be from Turkey, it didn't matter where they were from, but they were part of the Muslim millet. And, and the same thing applied uh, with the Christian millet. Then again, there were many, many um, Orthodox Christians in, in that. Um, the Armenian Orthodox actually had their own separate millet. Uh, and the Jews, of course, had their own separate millet. And to have your own separate millet, what that meant was that you were free to set up um, your own education system, to control the curriculum in your schools. Um, you had your own welfare system. In other words, you could look after your own community. You could even have your own civic courts for things like, you know, marriage, divorce, sort of internal affairs, if you like, within the community. Although that said, um, you could also, if you wanted to, um, you could go to a Muslim court and, as a Christian and get your case heard, which, which actually happened quite a lot if people felt they were going to get a better verdict. And, and there, are, there are recorded cases of um, you know, Christian clergy being quite worried by the number of <laughs> cases of Christians going off to Muslim courts in order to get a more favorable verdict, you know, on something to do with inheritance or whatever. <laughs> Um, so, so these things are, are, are far from black and white. You know, one of the things I, I really want to stress is this whole thing of, um, you know, uh, Christians versus Muslims is is such a sort of Disney version of of, of history. You know, and um, and what you were in your first question, actually, the other thing that's quite relevant to talk about um, is the number of Christians who were fighting on the Muslim side. Against the Christians, you know. <laughs> so when Mehmet the Conqueror, Conqueror took Constantinople, there were, you know, a hundred thousand Christians fighting on on his side, <laughs> and they were attacking Constantinople from the European mainland. Not, you know, they weren't some sort of rampaging hordes coming in from the east at all. You know, because by that stage they'd already established their state, their empire. And they were based in, in their capital of Edirne, which was on the European mainland. So people forget all these things. You know, it's, uh, it's so easy to have this black and white view, which is uh, just, just downright wrong. And, then it's not, it was, and you mentioned that it wasn't just Christians, right? I mean, there was a, a, a large population of Jews that also lived within the Ottoman Empire, especially after the conquest of Spain by Ferdinand and Isabella. Absolutely, yes. And, and they were very much welcomed in, of course, by, by, the, by the Ottoman state. Um, you know, in fact, the, the Sultan couldn't believe that 
called Ferdinand, you know, he said you'd call him a wise king. Well, why is he so stupid as to kick out all his most productive citizens? You know, well, we'll we'll have them, thank you very much, you know. So, <laughs> so he sent ships off to collect them and bring them back, you know. <laughs> very interesting. In a lot of ways, the, the millet system that you described, Diana, it's a lot more different than this kind of multicultural society that, you know, a lot of maybe in North American, European countries that they build, like the courts are one court. The education system is one education mm. system, but it was very different. It seems like a lot more open than in, in, in the Ottoman. In, in a way. I mean, it's interesting because what it, what it led to was that the communities themselves tended to live separately in, in separate communities, if you like, you know, based around their places of worship, you know, their own churches, their own synagogues or whatever, um, and their own schools then grew up around that. So you then had little quarters, if you like, within the cities that was, you know, the Armenian quarter, the, you know, the, the Shia quarter, whatever. It didn't, didn't really matter um, uh, because um, everybody was uh, where so, – so they lived – separately in separate um, communities, you know, by choice. Uh, but where they did mix a lot was in all the professional dealings then. So in all the trading arrangements, um, all, all the professional, um, uh, you, know, um, you know, universities and things too. I mean, uh, you know, it was, uh, th this is where all the mixing took place. So, so in a souk, for example, you would have a um, uh, a Christian who would own a shop next door to a Muslim, and, and this was just completely normal. And, and they would look after each other's shops. So, on a Sunday, when the Christian wanted to go off to church and pray, you know, his his Muslim neighbour would look after his shop, and vice versa. When the Muslim wanted to go off and do his prayers, um, you know, his his Christian neighbour would look after his shop. I actually wrote a completely different book about all of this, based on a real character uh, called called um, a book called the merchant of syria a real a real textile merchant who who lived in homs and he himself was a devout sunni muslim but he described how all his neighbors were were orthodox christians and they were his best friends yeah no definitely i mean like you said that that black and white view if you actually look more closely into the history does not hold whatsoever. It also kind of leads me to my my other question because you talk about the different types of role of, of different people. But I mean, due to often the biased coverage of mainstream media, many in the West have a distorted view of the rights of women in Islam and their role in Muslim societies. Now, the Ottomans are definitely considered an Islamic empire. And in your introduction, you mentioned that women played a powerful role from the very start and in some cases enjoying more rights than their contemporary Western counterparts. Could you please explain what type of role women had in Ottoman society? Yeah, well, it does go right back to the beginning. Um, and it, because they were nomads, the women uh, played a strong role from the start. They, they were expected to fight alongside their men. And one of the reasons the Ottomans had to migrate so far west, all, all the way across Anatolia, was because they were escaping the Mongol, uh, the Mongol hordes of the time, who who were busy claiming land and, and ravaging everything in sight and, and taking all their the pasture land for their for their flocks, so they kept on moving west to try to find safe areas for their flocks. And the women were incredibly tough. Um, you know the, the life that they had to lead. Uh, you know, it really was a case of um, survival. And so the women were incredibly skilled fighting weapons on horseback when they had children. They would strap their babies to their backs and, <laughs> and gallop off and uh, uh, also fight, you know. I mean, and not only that, they were, they were 
um, economically productive because they were busy making um, the rugs, the carpets, which were then sold in the markets um, for, for cash, which they needed for other things. You know, sometimes if there were famines and whatever, you know, they needed money to buy feed for their, for their flocks, for example. So the women, um, you know, everything really revolved in so many ways around the strength of the women. And, and they were very respected as a result. And uh, one curious little thing I think I do mention in the introduction is is this whole thing about trousers, which we think of as so Western. But of course, um, they go back to the Ottomans because to wear, you know, to, to ride horseback and fight, you've got to be wearing the right kit. <laughs> and so they wore these loose trousers that are sometimes still called Turkish trousers, but they were called shalvar. Um, and when European ambassadors, wives and people, you know, gradually saw a bit of Ottoman society, they, they were very struck by the freedom of these Ottoman women in what they wore, that they wore these much more comfortable uh, trousers underneath their, their loose gowns, you know, as opposed to all these tight corsets that they were stuck in. And so um, because this, uh, this fashion then rather took off, you know, and, and came over to Europe, and it was an American uh, lady, Amelia Bloomer, <laughs> who took them over to America, whereupon they got named Bloomers. But it all goes back to the Ottoman Turkish women fighting on horseback. And you also mentioned, um, I think, when you were talking about the economic uh, structure and system of the, the Ottomans, that even in that case, beyond just the rugs, the, the women had their own shops and they were very involved in certain industries as well. Yes, they had. They had, if you like, their own equivalent of sort of trade guilds, you know, to to kind of, um, you know, to work together. I mean, so the men had their own uh, guilds like that for their own shops, but and the, and the women for all the products that they made, they had their own systems of that sort as well. And and of course, anything to do with textiles was very much the woman's domain. And the Ottoman Empire was famous for its silk. Um, you know the silk garments uh, and everything. You know were in, in incredibly sought after, and and the Turkish rugs actually, the Ottoman rugs became hugely prized possessions in in Europe amongst the nobility and the aristocracy. And so you then get paintings, you know Holbein paintings, where um, you know Henry VIII or whoever is standing on a Turkish rug in a. So you you have the very top um, echelons of society in Europe. Um, who who couldn't get enough of these uh, these what were perceived as incredibly exotic, incredibly beautiful rugs that were thought of as so beautiful that a lot of the time they they thought they were too good to put on the floor. You know, they they hung them on the wall or they put them on the table as a kind of tablecloth. Dan, so another thing that you mentioned in your book, and it's you said that it's one of the most striking aspects of early Ottomans was the constant presence of dervishes, Muslim holy men among them both as fighters and as spiritual guides. Now, dervishes are associated with tasawwuf, which in Islam is the science of purifying the heart to get closer to God, and its adherents often being called Sufis. What was the importance of Sufis and Sufi orders in the establishment and expansion of the Ottoman Empire? Yes, uh, again, it, it, it may surprise people to learn that, because I think the Sunnis are considered uh, you know, sort of straightforward, uh, sorry, the Ottomans are considered straightforwardly Sunni, um, and people don't necessarily associate them with with um, the mystical side of Islam. But uh, um, it's very striking that from very early on, all the sultans chose to have alongside them as a sort of valued 
advisor almost and, and companion. Um, and they, these people would fight alongside them too. Uh, Sufi dervishes who, who were, who, who kind of guided them. I think they felt, um, as I mentioned before, you know, that, that they, they acknowledged that their own background was, was, you know, as, as nomadic tribes, you know, that they didn't have the level, the educational and religious teachings, if you like, they, they felt they needed all of that to, to make themselves, um, uh, well, to give them, if you like, additional credibility, but not just that. I think they felt they wanted it themselves. They needed the, the, the sort of religious and social values of, of the state, and they needed to learn. And if they, you know, given the scale of their ambition, they, they needed they needed to have a spiritual guide alongside them. They they acknowledged that the, on their own they couldn't do it, and so um, you know the religious the, the teques and things that were established um, all over the Ottoman Empire were um, were were wonderful establishments actually, um, where where anybody could could go and and study and um you know often they had hospitals attached they had soup kitchens attached where food was given out to the poor and actually that's something else i wanted to mention about um about the ottoman identity if you like because this is all part of it in a way um that bursa their very the very first ottoman capital um is is a unesco world heritage site because it is cited as the model Ottoman city in that it's built from the bottom up. And what I mean by that is, so the heart of the community is the mosque, and then immediately around the mosque is the souk, the madrasa, the the um, the khans, the hammams, you know, all the social services, if you like, that are being offered. It, it's like a huge community hub. So it's offering all these services for free to everybody, not just Muslims, but to everybody who wants to come and use them. And then, of course, the, um, the residential quarters grow up around that community hub. So it is very much a sort of bottom-up um, way of thinking of town planning. I mean, I often think it's the complete opposite, for instance, of somewhere like Dubai, where you've got, you know, uh, every, all the building is for the elites, you know, forget the poor, you know, they can sort themselves out, you know, we only care about the top echelons who've got, who've got all the money. Uh, but but no, the, the Ottoman approach was very much, you know, look after every citizen, for, offer the services to every citizen, and then they will become a loyal tax-paying citizen, you know, and, and then we can protect everybody and everybody can benefit from that. You know, that, that was their ethos. Yeah. And a lot of these, uh, you mentioned in the book, um, I guess in, in nowadays you can call them as like social enterprises. Once they were established, the, the, those structures around it or those institutions around it kind of supported the, the other works within the, the, the actual techias. Yes, yes, that's right. You're thinking of the wakf system and everything, where, where, where yes, as you say, it, it's all um, all the income from the income-producing uh, institutions like the hammams, the souks, um, would would uh, the income would be fed back into the maintenance of the mosque and the madrasas and paying the salaries of the staff. So all of that became sort of self perpetuating, but not in a way that any one individual could make a lot of money from it. The complete opposite, you know, nobody could inherit it because it was a religious trust and therefore for the benefit of society, um, you know, um, forever, for, for, for eternity, you know, so, so no, no individual could become wealthy on the basis of that kind of system. And a lot of these um, 
Sufi orders, they, they were, they're more than just kind of spiritual components to them, right? I mean, you mentioned um, Sheikh uh, Edabali, who Orhan mm. marries his daughter, who was yeah. part of the, the, the Ahi brothers or Ahi brothers, which was really, you, meant, you call them a socio-religious fraternity of crafts and trades. So it, there was a very, like, a, a complete system within. Yeah, it's very practical. It's very, actually very practical, you know, and geared to making everything work on, on the ground in a, in, a, in a very, you know, uh, where, where profit as such is not the motive, you know. I mean, yes, of course, you, you do make some money, but not in order to become personally wealthy. You, you make some money in order to be able to look after your family, be able to look after your neighbors, you know, and, and, and be able to feed some of the money back into, into the poorer people in society. And that's the other thing, actually, that um, one of the things built into their tax system was that if, for example, there was, um, you know, famine or a drought or something so that a particular village really struggled to pay the taxes because they hadn't got the produce that year, they were, um, you know, adjustments were made and, they, and, and the taxes were reduced um, until such point as they were able to, um, uh, to pay them, you know, when, when, when the agricultural produce increased again. So, so they were very forgiving <laughs> in that sense, you know, that they weren't extortionate, um, you know, that they, they, they understood if things that something might change that was out of your control that would make it hard for you to pay the taxes. Something that, you know, a lot of us hear about these days, especially due to the COVID pandemic, are vaccines, uh, Diana. And um, you write about uh, vaccines and how they're connected to the Ottoman. The invention of vaccines often being associated with Dr. Edward Jenner, who found that people infected with cowpox were immune to smallpox. But in your book, you argue that that's not entirely historically accurate to consider him like the creator or the founder or the father of vaccines. Could you speak uh, why that is the case and what do the Ottomans have to do with vaccines? Yeah, well, it's not just me speculating. I mean, it's uh, it's all, you know, historically recorded that um, the, the smallpox vaccine was in quite widespread use in the Ottoman Empire um, um, from 1717. Uh, so this is, you know, a good half century before Jenna. And uh, there's actually a stamp that came out. I, I give the illustration, I think, in, in, in the book um, that commemorates the 300th year anniversary of the first vaccination. And it has a picture of a woman administering the, um, the vaccine to a child inside a hammam, because that is where it happened. Again, the women, the women did this. They, they vaccinated children uh, in, inside, um, in, in hammams. And it was... Uh, it was very widely accepted, and to the extent that it became compulsory that it, you had to be vaccinated to go to school, to go to any, to attend an institution, and it was completely free. The state provided it, um, but because the Ottomans lived at a time of um, enormous numbers of pandemics, you know there was the Black Death, obviously, and and there were a whole range of pandemics, so they they became. As a, as a state, very skilled in managing pandemics, and they had systems of quarantine. So uh, ships coming into um, to Istanbul had to stop off at quarantine stations along the Bosphorus to make sure that they weren't carrying any, any disease. Um, they had uh, um, masking was, was, was very common. Again, it was recognized. Um, and again, it, it, the approach I found was very interesting. This, this whole thing that 
everybody, even, you know, prisoners and refugees, had to be vaccinated. It wasn't just for the rich. Whereas when it when it was brought over to England by the British ambassador's wife, Lady Montague, and she tried it out on her own son, and, um, and it, when it was shown to work, you know, she persuaded some of her own relations to, to start it. Um, and then when Jenna, I mean, the, the, the British medical um, profession resisted this fiercely at the beginning, you know, it was very much resisted. And then gradually, as it became more acceptable, of course, what they did was they tried it out on prisoners. <laughs> and, and then once once it was shown to work on prisoners, suddenly the royal family got it first and, and things like that, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so it's the complete opposite, you know, way of looking at it, if you like, of the way of looking at society. Yeah. And again, it comes back to that very I guess a lot of pragmatism that you mentioned within the Ottoman approach of like, if you take care of everybody, then the whole state kind of yes. benefits. It's, it's self-interested up to a point, you know, if you think of it like that, you know, that they realize that if you keep everybody happy, then they will remain a loyal citizen. Um, and all that only started to go wrong right at the end, you know, when you had an awful lot of sort of Russian meddling, actually, funnily enough, for, you know, in the light of Ukraine and everything. I mean, it's a sort of little bit of... Uh, déjà vu about some of these things. <laughs> Going along with that pragmatic approach, Diana, you you also explain a bit about the. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. The Dervishma system. Um, the Dervishma. Mm. system, yes. yes. And, and and you write that the the type of meritocracy that was in, incorporated into that in that system is hard to achieve even today. Could you speak a little about uh, what you mean by that and what that system, how it reflects the Ottoman's unique approach yes. to statecraft? Again, the whole Dev Shirmer system is very, very controversial these days. And, and a lot of people really slam the Ottomans about the Dev Shirmer because they say, oh, it's all based on slavery and, uh, you know, stealing, stealing children. Um, but you have to set this in context, you know, I mean, uh, of the time. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sure there were cruel aspects to it, if you like. That, but what it was, was it was all part of this recognition that they needed the best. They, they wanted to find the best qualified people, the most promising young, you know, um, wh wherever they were. So, so, so the, um, um, you know, it's all, it's all properly documented that, that people would go off. I mean, only when the state needed more people, you know, more, more civil servants, if you like, and more soldiers. Um, so, so it was everybody who would then work for the state. Um, they would go off and recruit from villages. A lot of them um, happened to be in the Balkans, um, and then they would they would go round. But but again, you know, you get you so you get you get both sides of the story. You get stories. Um, depends who's writing the history, you know, as as usual. So you get stories, um, you know, from the from the Balkan side, sort of talking about. Um, you know, the, the sort of awfulness of these mothers having their children torn away from them. Whereas other stories will talk about how when um, when the Sultan's men were coming to recruit, you know, there were people who would rush out and offer their sons because <laughs> they knew that it would it would give an enormous leg up in, in society. You know, if their son was lucky enough to enter the sort of giant Ottoman civil service, if you like, and be trained up and fully educated and, and his skills would be assessed, you know, and he would be, um, you know, put in whatever, whatever areas he was felt to have talents in, that would be where he was put. 
Um, and as a result, the people who rose up through that system were genuinely talented people, no matter where they came from, you know, so they could be the son of a shepherd in some remote Balkan village, but they could end up as the prime minister because they'd shown themselves to be incredibly able. And then once they were that powerful, of course, they tended to favor their the village of their birth. And so they would make sure that a nice bridge got built there or, or you know, the money was found for a nice mosque or church if they were originally Christian, because, of course, that was the other thing that Christian children uh, were taken. Um, and they were then, if if you like, forced, you know, is perhaps too strong a word, but they were educated to become Muslims. Um, and so they, they um, but they never forgot their roots on the whole, you know, so Sinan, the court architect, was originally from a Christian village, a Christian background. Um, but these sorts of, you know, conflicts, the way we tend to think of these things as terrible dilemmas, it wasn't really like that, I don't think, at, at, that, at that point. You know, people didn't think in that sort of way. And so, um, you know, the fact that, you know, somebody like Sinan was clearly incredibly talented and, you know, became such an amazing architect who served under three different sultans. Um, but, you know, he, he endowed um, fountains and things like that in his own home village, just like many of the other, you know, grand viziers who had originally been from Christian backgrounds did. Um, and in fact, one of them even established, uh, enabled the the Serbian Orthodox Church <laughs> to be um, to be sort of re reinvigorated and and appointed his own brother to be the first the first Archbishop. You know, and that was fine. That was fine. You know, the, the Ottoman system was fine with that. Nobody minded. It was fair enough. You know, because he got to the top through his own um, merits. So you know, in other words where, you know, your birthright, you had no birthright. So it wasn't a nobility in that sense, you know, whereas Europe was all based on aristocracy and you were just born into, you know, some incredibly wealthy setup. It was certainly not like that. So that's what I mean about it being a, a true meritocracy. You mentioned that's the interesting part of it, where you didn't, you don't really find that type of aristocracy in, in the Ottoman uh, state, the way that you found it in mm. Europe. No, no. And in a way, you see, that made it... Um, Stronger, much stronger. I mean, it was one of the reasons why it lasted six hundred years. You know, because because it uh, it worked as a system. Yeah. Then I wanted to ask you one more question because you know, just we're talking about the architecture as well. You write a lot about how central and important water was to the Ottoman cities, towns, architectural approach. You mentioned the fountains that are being built. Can you speak a little bit about that as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I mean, Sinan, who I've just mentioned, before he became the court architect, he was the chief water engineer, uh, because the understanding, of, I mean, this applies obviously in all of Islam, that, you know, when you're building a mosque, the first thing you have to do is consider the water system because of the ablution fountain that has to be there. You have to have constantly running water. So the first thing Sinan used to do was to go off and work out how to bring the water to to the mosque, you know, and in the case of Istanbul, um, most of the water sources were up in the Belgrade forest to the north of, of the city. And so uh, an incredibly complex series of um, aqueducts and underground tunnels and things would bring this water in constantly. Um, and 
so that was that was specifically for the mosques, obviously, but also, um, and again, this is general to Islam, obviously, the, the, the foundation of, of public fountains everywhere, that one of the things that you can do, you know, that it's encouraged to, to do is to provide clean drinking water for free to everybody. So when uh, when Mehmed the Conqueror took Constantinople, it was a, a, a decaying city, essentially, and the, the Byzantine Empire was on its knees by then, and, and the, the city was very neglected. And, and so one of the first things he did was to completely upgrade the hygiene system of, of the city. And so, you know, there were public toilets in a way that there were not all across Europe at that time, and public fountains everywhere, um, hammams, you know, the, the whole... The whole sophistication of that of, of a society where water, clean water, was freely available, was again a, a recognition of the fact that um, this is you know one of the essentials of life, and and people need it adds to people's sense of security and and safety if if they know that they will always have access to clean clean water in in their lives. Diana, I really enjoyed this book. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I highly, highly recommend uh, the book to our uh, listeners, The Ottomans, A Cultural Legacy, to really experience a, a, a fresh perspective of the Ottoman legacy. So, Diana, thank you so much uh, for writing the book. Congrats on that and also for your time today. Thanks very much. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Muslim World in Focus. For the latest updates, you can follow us on Twitter at Muslim Focus and on Instagram at Muslim World in Focus. For any questions, you can email us at muslimworldinfocus at gmail.com. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.